you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. Can we thank our Collide Choir for leading us in song? Brent Coleman and Haley Pepper led us, and, and uh, I know all of us are, are you know, a little bit tense. We're going to take a deep breath this morning. And we, this is, uh, every, it looks like everything's good, and so no, no, no 30 to 40 minute wondering if everything's okay, everything's okay, and we're good. This is a good place. We have a lot of doctors here, so need any time that something happens, know that there are a lot of people who uh, will care for you. And so if I'm preaching and I fall off here, I know that I'm in good hands. So not only the Lord's hands, but... Uh, also, uh, but so, so we can calm and take a deep breath and open our hearts to Genesis chapter 5. I, I had in a previous church one of my church members who came up to me right before I started to preach and he said, Is it okay, David, to skip the boring parts of the Bible? I mean, that's just, it was just a very frank. He didn't have any kind of like pietistic uh, cleaning up of the question. He just asked it directly. The context was this. We had started in January, read through the Bible. We were going to go from Genesis to Revelation. And so he started the first day reading plan. And it was, it was the greatest hits of the greatest hits. I mean, it's Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. And so all of it, he's, God creates the heavens and the earth, we got Adam and Eve, and then the Garden of Eden, we've got the fall as, as sin enters through the, the choice of Eve, and then Adam, and then the story of Cain and Abel, so very familiar beats that, that he was reading through there, and then he comes to Genesis chapter 5, and he asked me the next time he saw me, is it okay to skip or to skim certain parts, and, and this was what led him to that question. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. This goes on, this refrain here, this repetition goes on for another 21 verses. And so the next time I saw him, he wondered to me and asked me directly, is it okay to skip these names and how long they lived and they died because this is not the first nor is the last place that we're going to come to genealogies in Genesis nor genealogies in Scripture. So are they skimmable? Are they skippable? Is there anything in this passage that has relevance for your life and for my life? That is a, I think, an honest question. Well, looking at this passage here, if you just take it in its entirety, we're not going to read all of it this morning in its entirety. you got ten sets Ten sets of families here. Ten, like twelve, throughout the Bible is a number of completion. 
So it's important for you to discover that, that Moses and the editors compiling the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here are not trying to give us a comprehensive genealogy of everyone who lived between Adam and Eve and then ultimately Shem, Ham, Japheth and the story of Noah. This is a montage. This is a way to fast forward the story from Cain and Abel to the story of the flood which we will be in next week. It's also important for you to see that right here in the passage, it tells us that they had other sons and other daughters in verse 4, and then other sons and other daughters in verse 7. So it's not a comprehensive list of everyone who lived here. But the question then still remains, can we skip it? Paul would say to his protege in the ministry that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So what are we trained in from this genealogy? What is profitable out of this genealogy? How are we corrected in the midst of the list of names, who they fathered, how long they lived, and then they died? One of the things I can't help but to think when I read this to you this morning is that, you know, as a parent, I read Scripture to my kids, and you as a parent read Scripture to your kids, and you as grandparents read Scripture to your kids, and, and it doesn't take even the most perceptive child listening to this list, even in the midst of the distractions of life, to say, what? Methuselah lived 969 years? Dad, are you sure about that? Adam lived 930 years? Are you sure about this, I mean, is this a promotion video for if you have the right diet and if you, uh, you also uh, partake of essential oils that you could live for over 900 years? If you go to CrossFit four to five days a week? I mean, it, it, no, that's not what that is. But then what do we do with these years? Well, there's a sense in which you have to ask, well, are there cultural backgrounds outside of the Bible, that would maybe shine some light on a different way of counting years. So maybe 930 years. Is it 930 years in our concept of time? There are other ancient Near Eastern documents. I mean, you can see them there at stand. I mean, you can read them. You have lists that were compiled around the same time that the Genesis was being written of Sumerian kings. And so it would say that these Sumerian kings, they ruled before the great flood. It's interesting, even outside of the Bible, there's all kinds of great flood stories. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So the Sumerian kings lived before the great flood. And this is their their lineage and this is their life. Some would say uh, lived 28,000 years. Some would say they lived 36,000 years. Some lived and reigned 43,000 years. And so scholars have speculated that uh, those who were writing down the lineage of the Sumerian kings to deify them, to exalt them, would give them these long lifespans to to sort of say, look how amazing that they are. They didn't live for 43,000 years. They didn't live for 26,000 years, but it was a way of esteeming them. And so some have looked at those lists and said, well, maybe... There's a cultural undercurrent here that's different. There's a different way of understanding time. And maybe Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is sort of uh, uh, giving respect and esteem to 
those that he's listing in this genealogy. And I say, I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced. I'm just not convinced. What if we did a novel thing? What if we just said the years are right? What if we just said these people lived 930 years and they lived 969 years and we begin to think that this is really a very unique time in salvation history? We're not that far from the Garden of Eden, the Tree of Life, in which anyone that had access to the Tree of Life would live for an eternity. And I'm here to tell you, 969 years is not a long time in view of eternity. We also know that after Genesis chapter 6 and after the flood, God says, as he looks upon the stench of sin in the world, as he sends the flood, he says in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 6, that my spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal, their days will be 120 years. It's a way of of God saying, not that everyone's going to live for 120 years, but there is going to be a definite lifespan that is different than those that were pre-the flood, those that were closer to the Garden of Eden. And what we begin to see is that after the flood, Shem, he died at 600 years, still a long lifespan. But by the end of it, we see that Abraham lived 175 years, Isaac 180, Jacob 130 And so the further that we get from the tree of life and access that individuals had to that, the lifespans begin to be shorter. But we still have the problem. I mean, is this this just a passage that we bring our questions and curiosities to? Or is there something in this passage here that is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? And you find it in the refrains. You find it in the repetitions. I mean, you saw it in Genesis chapter 5. You hear it when I read it to you. I read verse 5. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. There is a repetition here. There is a refrain. There is a predictability to this and then all of a sudden it stops. He lived. He fathered. He died. 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 And then Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Boy, that's a surprise. Didn't see that coming. Where did that come from? All of these individuals, they live, they have a family, they die. And then in verse 23, Enoch lives And he dies, but not not a natural death. He was actually taken from this earthly existence into his eternal existence with God. What was the difference? Well, he walked with God. He's one of two people in the Old Testament. Then we have this little interesting vignette into their life that Elijah was taken up into a whirlwind to meet God without going through what all of us will go through, which is a natural death. Enoch did not experience a natural death, but he's taken into his eternal existence with God. What is the difference? Well, what the text tells us here is that Enoch, for 365 years, he walks with God. He walks faithfully with God. The anonymous writer of the book of Hebrews 
would come to the great hall of faith. And he would say, you know, there's something about Genesis chapter 5 that you want to skip it. You want to skim it. It seems a little boring, but, but I'm, going to, I'm going to exalt it because in Hebrews chapter 11, we discover the grand news that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the writer of Hebrews says this individual who juts out of the genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 is actually a template. It's actually an illustration of what it means to be a person who walks with God and comes to the end of life and walks with God for an eternity to come. What was different with Enoch? Well, he had faith. And that faith is not just an intellectual apprehension, an intellectual belief that there actually is a God. But Hebrews 11.6 says that he sought God. So looking at this passage from this side of the cross, looking back into the story of Enoch, it becomes this invitation for us to place our faith, to place not only just our belief, but actually to seek after God, to place our faith in the one who has conquered death, and that one is Jesus Christ. That one is the very one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death, and he has defeated it forevermore. You're not going to live for 969 years. None of you thought that. Nine decades, maybe ten decades, maybe. Seven decades, six decades, I mean, and on and on. But all of us are going to be a part of a Genesis 5 list. None of you escape this. This preacher will be on a list. David Eldridge lived this many years and then he died. All of us are on a list. All of us become a footnote in our family tree's history. And decades down the road, people ask, what was his name? I pastored a church and maybe this was true at Dawson at one time. And maybe it's true, I'm still finding nooks and crannies in this church and People are like, you're the pastor. You should know everything about the church. And I, I think I know the least about the church at times. And so I'm still finding places. So maybe there's a place here. But a lot of churches have the, have the gallery of the preachers. And my previous church been around for 175 years. And I would see all of these pastors. And I thought to myself, as I would ask people, who was the pastor in 1940? And they didn't know. Who was the pastor in 1920? Well, off the top of their head, they didn't know. Who was the pastor in 1910? Off the top of their head, they didn't know. And I would realize, and, and, and it might seem to be a bleak thing, but I think it's actually helpful to know that one day my picture is going to be on there and decades down the road, people are going to be like, who was the pastor in 2014? I don't know. He's on the list. So all of us live a life that is finite. All of us will live a life and we face the inevitability of our mortality. And this is something that we must ask and answer. Are we ready for what is inevitable? Are you ready? Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for that good night? Uh, do you have confidence that you can walk with God into that good night? Now, none of us in this room 
none of us in this room walk perfectly with God. None of us in this room, there's two places in Genesis. One with Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden pre-the-fall. And then there's another place, Noah walking with God. And we know that Noah is not a perfect righteous person. So walking with God is actually placing your faith in the one who has for an eternity past and for the eternity to come in the future has perfectly walked in step with his Father, and that is Jesus Christ. And when you, by faith, Place your faith in the one who walks perfectly with God so you will receive what he has earned. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His victory over death becomes your victory over death. His perfection becomes your perfection. His hope in the face of death that all of us will face, it becomes your hope in the face of death. Do you know the faith of Enoch? Have you ever come to a place and a time in your life where you've trusted him so that you can walk with God into that good night? Baseball started yesterday in uh, at least recreation baseball. We had an opening day. All three of our boys are playing, and so we're at the ball fields the whole day and, and enjoy. It's a beautiful day. I know many of you have grandkids. Many of you have children that were at the ball field yesterday. And one of the greatest baseball players to ever play the game is Ted Williams. Ted, Teddy ball game. We all know Ted Williams. Ted Williams played for the Boston Red Sox. Ted Williams is arguably the best left-handed baseball player to ever play the game. He, he very well may be one of the best hitters, if not the best hitter, to play baseball. Ted Williams passed away in 2002. Ted Williams' body was cryogenically frozen with the hope that one day science could come to the place of sophistication that it could conquer the very thing that caused him to die and that he could walk in the land of the living once again. Teddy Ballgame could be with us if science could progress to a time where it actually defeats death. Can I tell you an easier way (laughs) to to have hope that when you walk into that good night, that that you're not having to, to go through the scientific journals of the day there in the hospital wondering, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That you don't have to pass that down to your grandchildren. See, Dawson, I'm not looking for science to defeat death because I look into the eyes of a Savior who once and for all has defeated death. So my hope is not in scientific advancement. My hope is in a Savior who gives us hope no matter what list we're on. No matter if God gives you two decades or three decades or five decades or seven decades or nine decades, ultimately we all have to answer the question, where will our hope reside after this earthly life? Now none of us should frolic to funerals. None of us as believers should be cavalier. Death is an enemy that stings the side of heaven. There's no one in this room who hasn't uh, experienced the, the tremendous loss 
and the unexpected nature of death that comes like a thief in the night and it takes your breath away. And there, before you know it, a normal Monday has turned into a Monday afternoon and you're talking about things that you never imagined that you would talk about and you weep and you grieve and that is a part of a Christian experience. But we weep not like those without hope. Because the Bible tells us As Paul would say to the church at Corinth, that we know what it is like when we, even when we don't experience, walk into that good night. See, the Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That there is an instantaneous transfer of address. We go from the forwarding address of our earthly home to the permanent residence of our eternal home. This you don't have to wonder about. This you don't have to worry about. This is your destination, believer. When I was five or six years old, there was a routine. My parents had moved us to the town I grew up in. They were building a house. We lived temporarily in this two-story duplex. And the rooms were close to the living room. And so at night, I would hear them listening to the TV And if you're five or six or you have uh, grandchildren or children, one of the things that you know is that you want to be with mom and dad. So if they're staying up, you want to stay up. And so I wouldn't want to go to bed in my room and I would listen to what they were listening to on the television. And I knew that there was sort of a, a routine. There would be this announcer that would come on and say, here's Johnny. And then all of a sudden they'd be clapping. It just sounded like a party that I wasn't invited to as a five-year-old. And there'd be laughter and the audience would laugh and my mom and dad would laugh. And I was just like, I've got I've to be a part of this. And so I said, like, can I stay up? Can I watch Johnny? And so on the weekends, my, my mom and dad would relent, and I would get to watch what they would get to watch at times. Now, one of the things I didn't know as a five-year-old is that to get to the Johnny Carson show as a five- or six-year-old, that you have to go through the speed bump of the local news at 10. And so I, I didn't have proper estimation of, of how lack of, of, of engagement that I would have with the local weather report for the day. And so the James span of where I grew up would sort of uh, give me the weather report. And actually, I would often fall asleep in the midst of it, never getting to what I wanted to see. And I would fall asleep on that Friday night on the bottom floor of that duplex on the floor, a pillow under me wanting to watch the television. But I never woke up on Saturday morning on that floor. I'd fall asleep on that hard floor. I'd fall asleep on a floor that I wouldn't want to sleep on for hours and hours. But, but every Saturday morning that I would wake up, I would wake up in the comfort of my own bed. Because you know what happened? That, that when I fell asleep on that bottom floor, that, that my earthly father would come by and he would scoop me up in his arms and he would carry me up to the stairs to a room that was my room to my bed. All of us in this room will fall asleep on the Friday night of our last night and you are having to ask yourself today, am I assured that my Heavenly Father will come and scoop me up into His arms and take me to my eternal home. 
And if you said yes to the finished work of the gospel, I am here to tell you the most hopeful story is that the pains of this earthly life will be transformed into praises for the eternity to come in that room that He's prepared for you. That all of the disease and the depression and the despondency of life in the room that He has prepared for you, it will be transformed into doxology. Every tear that you've wept, every heartache that you've experienced, it will be no more in the place that He has prepared for you. It is a place where every day is better than the day before. C.S. Lewis comes to the end of his Chronicles of Narnia series, and he's written seven books. And the last one's called The Last Battle. And we've, we've watched these two sisters and these two brothers go through the travails of Narnia. We've watched them go through the triumphs of Narnia. And then we come to the very end, and we're wondering to ourselves, what will it be like when these books are no more? And so Lewis peers into the beyond, and this is what he gives us. But for them... It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. What hope do you have when you walk into that good night? What are you resting all of your eternity upon? Is it your good works? They're not good enough. Is it your good thoughts and good pursuits? It's just not good enough. Here's the grand news. For all of us, like Enoch, who would place our faith, we do not have to fear. We do not have to fear because while on this earthly plane, death seems to be the great enemy, it is an enemy that was defeated by an even greater Savior. And through His finished work, we are carried from our earthly life into an eternal life in our Father's presence where every chapter is better than the chapter before. Let us pray. As we bow our heads, can I just talk to you for a second before we even pray? You are here this morning, and I do not think it's an accident. There's so many of us in this room that without a shadow of a doubt, we know that we've placed our faith in Christ Jesus. But, but I would be remiss if you're here and I've talked about this security even in the face of death. And you say, I don't know what he's talking about. Do you realize today that if, if you would confess your sin, if you would believe in the finished work of the gospel, if you would trust in his defeat of death, that you can have hope? I want to offer you the opportunity. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, 
I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. I'm going to pause. I'm going to invite you to pray. You don't have to pray this prayer out loud. You don't have to walk this aisle. But just in the very depth of your heart, would you use these words and let them become your words? God, today, I realize that I have done things that displease you. I realize, God, that I have sinned and that my sin separates me from you, a holy God. Today I believe in the story of the Bible that you would send your son to die for my sin. That he was raised on the third day. And today I commit my life to him. Today I trust him as my Savior and my Lord. Today I know that I don't have to fear anything because you, God, have defeated everything. Thank you, God, for saving my soul. It's in your name we pray. The saving name of Jesus. Amen.